you would, turn with me to John chapter 20. Apologize, the reference on the screen behind me is not correct. John chapter 20. Uh, the reason that that reference is not correct is because here at Grace we have been going through the Gospel of John. Uh, and so that was actually the next stop. But uh, in light of today, in light of the, today, the fact that today is Easter, we're going to jump forward in John's story. Uh, to John chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18. What we're about to read takes place on Sunday, uh, what they would have called the first day of the week. We call it Sunday. Just days before this, uh, late Thursday night, early Friday morning, Jesus, after Eating and praying with his disciples is, arrest, is arrested. He's tried on false charges that no one can prove. Uh, and yet they send him over to the Roman governor Pilate to be executed. To be executed by crucifixion. And so he is. And that brings us to Friday. Uh, Friday afternoon, Jesus dies on the cross. And the, the words that we just sang, it is... Whoops. The words that we just sang, it is finished, come from Jesus. Those are Jesus' last words on the cross. As Jesus uh, hangs there right before he dies, and you would find this uh, just before this passage in John 19, in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. All of the work that he came to do, finished. The living the perfect life, finished. Dying a redeeming death, a ransoming death for sinners, finished. His work, uh, the work that John spends his entire gospel talking about, the work finished. And so Jesus dies, he is removed from the cross, and he is buried. And then you have Saturday, which would have been the Sabbath, and so nothing happens on the Sabbath, no work is done on the Sabbath, all is quiet. And that brings us to John 20, the first day of the week, Sunday. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. We know this to be John. He's the one who wrote this gospel. He just doesn't refer to himself by name. She goes to Simon Peter and to John and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. 
Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stepped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, though the grass withers and though the flower fades, and we all, like grass, will fade, yet your word will stand forever. Lord, would you please bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of your holy word. God, apply its truth to our hearts and do that deep work of transformation that only you can do. So, Lord, would you bless uh, this time, our time, in your word. Speak to us. Uh, We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've ever given too much thought to the fact, I mentioned that in our prayer of preparation, right, that this is really, that this is really strange. I mean, we're... We're in the deep south, and so you've probably grown up and you may have heard it enough that the idea of a man coming back to life, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, of course, duh. Um, but that's, that's, that's not really a duh, okay? That's, that's a really strange truth. Um, in fact, it's a really impossible truth. And yet it's a truth that, that Christianity, I mean, that Christianity is built on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. If either one of those things... Right, if Good Friday doesn't happen, Christianity is worthless. And if Easter Sunday doesn't happen, Christianity is worthless. Now, it's not much to believe that an insurrectionist, that an that a enemy of the state could be crucified. That doesn't take a whole lot of imagination. But this whole idea of that same person just three days later getting up and walking out and appearing to the disciples, well, now that's something else altogether. And so I would invite you, as we look at this passage again, to try to see it with eyes afresh. Um, Because what the resurrection means for us is that all of the dashed hopes of humanity are restored in Jesus. What the resurrection means is that all of the dashed hopes of humanity are restored in Jesus. And that's that's a pretty big claim. That's a pretty bold claim. Like, Really, Kevin, all 
the things, all of my hopes and dreams that never quite come to fruition. You're telling me that the resurrection, that Jesus leaving the tomb alive and well somehow meets those? Well, think about what some of those are, all right? Maybe uh, for, for many of us, um, you're weary of your body wearing out. Um, you're tired of waking up groaning, uh, right? And you're, you've noticed um, this only applies to a certain part of the population. Um, my children seem to get up just fine, no groaning uh, whatsoever, and they usually can creep into our room stealthily. Um, I don't do anything stealthily. And so uh, that, this only applies to a certain portion of us. Um, but what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 is that because of Jesus' resurrection and new body, you too will have a new body. But it really goes even, even further than that. What is, your, what is your greatest enemy? What is the one thing that if you achieve everything else, if you accomplish everything else in your life that you wanted to accomplish, what is the one thing that will frustrate you in the end? It will be death. And so it really isn't a huge leap to say that the resurrection means that all of our dashed hopes and dreams are restored in Jesus. Because what the resurrection means is that your greatest enemy, my greatest enemy, our last enemy, is defeated. He is defeated in an empty tomb. He is defeated when Jesus walks out. But let's see, let's kind of walk our way through this narrative and, and notice a few things about the empty tomb. The first thing we notice is that the empty tomb is a shock. It is astonishing. It is unexpected. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, uh, Mary is coming with some other ladies, and they're coming to kind of finish um, anointing Jesus' body. Some of that was done when he was put into the tomb, but they're coming to really pay their, uh, their last respects. They're coming to, to kind of do their last service for him. Okay, uh, And so, of course, it's, it's pre-dawn, and so it is dark. But if you remember, if you've been with us, John loves imagery, especially the light-darkness imagery. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the message of John's gospel is that Jesus is the light who has come in to dispel and chase away the darkness. And so we have a problem here because it's still dark. For Mary, at least, it seems as if the darkness has won. This man who claimed so much, her Lord, her friend. I mean, they really did think he was going to be the one to save Israel. And yet, her heart is dark as she approaches the tomb. And the reason is because she's, she's not going to worship. She's not going... She doesn't think she's going to worship. She doesn't think she's going to meet him. She thinks he's dead. She's going to say goodbye. She is about to be shocked. She, fully, she approaches the tomb fully expecting to find Jesus in there. And this is contrary to everything that Jesus had told his disciples. You can find it in Matthew 16. Uh, you find it in Mark 8. Uh, particularly Mark 8, verse 31, Jesus had been telling his disciples who he was and what his mission was. 
here's who I am and here's what I've come to do. And what he said was, I'm going to go die. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to come back to life. Now, you know, all all of my illustrations involve little children because I have little children. But I find that big children, even in their 50s, aren't really too much different from little children in their fives. Right? When my son comes to me and says, I want to play Uno. And I say, great. Right now we have to go to the grocery store. But we're going to play Uno when we get back. Where is the focus on the grocery store? Right? If I say, hey, we're going to play Uno when we get back from the groceries. I don't want to go to the grocery store. I hate the grocery store. It's like, hey, man, I said we were going to play Uno. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, this is going to happen. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried. But guess what? In three days, I'm going to get up. And they say, you're going to be killed? Right? They can't get past that. And the fact that they can't get past it is proved even here because they expect him to still be in that tomb. They expect him to still be dead. And Mary represents really all of the disciples in this regard. And so she gets there. The stone has been taken away, this huge stone that would have weighed as much as a a car that would have rolled in front of the, the small entryway into the tomb. It's been taken away, even possibly off its track that it rolled on. And so she's shocked. She's probably devastated. She runs and she tells Peter and John what's going on. And and what does she say? She doesn't say, hey, he's back from the dead. No, she says, they've stolen his body. Grave robbers have come. Somebody has come. Our enemies have come, and they've taken his body. They've removed him. I don't know where they've taken him. She's devastated. And so Peter and John run to investigate this for themselves. Verse 4, both of them are running together. The other disciple outruns Peter. John outruns Peter and reaches the tomb first. And let me just stop and say this. That small details like that, that tells you right there that this is an eyewitness account. That this is not, that this doesn't read like a myth or a legend. Myths and legends don't include tiny details like John outrunning Peter. And that doesn't have any special meaning like, oh, John loved Jesus more than Peter, so he ran faster. That's, that's not why John records this. This is... This is news reporting. This is a man who has lived this, and he's recalling his memories, and he's reporting it for our benefit. And so just, to, just an aside to say that small details like that tell us that this is an eyewitness account, that this really happened. They're not writing myth or legend. And so they get to the tomb, they look in, and what do they see? The grave clothes lying there on the, on the bench. If you had looked in the... Um, the little port into the tomb. They would have carved a bench out of stone and the the corpse would have been laid on there. Uh, And what they see when they look in, John looks in first and he sees the linen cloths lying there. Peter, the more impetuous one, the bolder one, you know, John has a little bit of propriety about him. He doesn't really want to go into a tomb. Peter doesn't seem to care. So he gets there and bursts on into the tomb and he sees the cloths and he sees the face cloth. And that's a really curious thing. 
Because if somebody had come along to rob the tomb, why would they have left the grave clothes? And if you think about it, here, here's how they entombed people. Here's burial preparation in, uh, in the ancient East. Right? They would have taken these perfumed strips of linen, and this is what uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did on Friday afternoon after getting Jesus' body. They would have taken these perfumed strips of linen, and they would have wrapped his body. Uh, they would have prepared him for burial, and right, they would have put the, the face cloth on him, and they would have put him in the tomb. Right? And it was a fairly painstaking process. And even if, you, uh, if you're familiar with John's gospel, in John 14, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. His friend Lazarus, he raises, raises him from the dead. And when Lazarus comes out, he's still wearing the grave clothes, right? They, Jesus has to tell them to unbind him, right, to take the strips off of him. And yet here we are in Jesus' tomb, and the grave clothes are still there. So an odd thing if somebody came in and stole the body... Would you even want to do that? If you were going, if, if Jesus' enemies had come in there to remove the body, why would they have taken off the linen? Why would they have taken off the strips? It's almost as if the person wearing them said, I don't need these anymore. And he took them off himself, right? Took the face cloth off, folded it, put it aside. And so it's upon seeing this that John believes Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. But then there's this interesting note. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so John believes because of what he sees, and yet he is still ignorant of, A, all that Jesus has been teaching for these three years he's been with him. But he's also ignorant of his own Bible, his own Old Testament. That he would have had Psalm 16.10 where it talks about God not letting the Messiah see corruption, not abandoning his soul to death. So even to John, who is in the fledgling stages of belief, to him, this was an unexpected shock. Even though Jesus had been teaching about it, even though the scriptures pointed to it, he was only just beginning to grasp it. And in fact, if you keep reading the Gospels, if you read past this point, what you'll see is that Jesus hangs around, right? Before he ascends to heaven, Jesus keeps meeting with his disciples in order to explain to them what has happened. And in fact, in Luke's Gospel, we see Jesus appear unknowingly to two disciples, uh, and he actually calls them foolish. He says, slow of heart, slow to believe all that the prophets have taught. And he takes them through their entire Bible showing them how the resurrection was part of the scriptures. Um, so here's what, here's what this tell, tells us, that, that no one, not even the people closest to Jesus who are most intimately connected to his teaching, no one expected or looked for Jesus to get out of that tomb because people don't rise from the dead. That would have been just as shocking then, it was just as shocking then, as it is now. And one of the ways this applies to us is that we, we, tend, to have a, uh, we tend to have this historical superiority. Uh, we think, well, because we have modern medicine, because we have modern science, we know things now that they didn't know 
back then. And that's certainly true. But, it, but here's how that plays out. We say things, well, we, the, the, the mindset is, they were gullible, we're sophisticated. They believed in silly things like miracles, we don't. And my point is this, they were just as shocked by the resurrection as you and I should be. Right? That, that didn't happen. That wasn't a normal run-of-the-mill event. In fact, it had never happened before Jesus. So, knowledge alone will not save you. Knowledge alone will not save you. And what I mean by that is that Christianity is the hardest religious pill to swallow. If you think about it, every other religion is relatively easy to grasp. Okay? You've got a prominent, important teacher... They lay out some good principles for you, to, for you to live your life by, and away you go. But Christianity, and I mentioned this at the beginning, Christianity is built on this thing called a resurrection. Christianity is built not on the great teachings of its founder. Christianity is based on the fact that its founder got out of the grave. And that for your faith to mean anything... Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, for your faith to mean anything, you have to believe that. And that is just not something that we are naturally geared to do. And so Christianity is the hardest religious pill to swallow. And what that means is that God, and we've seen this already through the Gospel of John, that God must bring you to that realization. That that you can't just look at resurrection on the face of it and say, yeah, okay, sounds good, I'll go with that. That option really isn't open to you. In fact, and the reason I say that option is not open to you is because the people who experienced, they didn't get it. They saw it, and they were skeptical. They saw it, and they were shocked. It required the Lord Jesus himself coming in and saying, hey, guys, we talked about this. Here's what this means. Your Bible talks about this. And now I'm going to have to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can tell other people about it. So the empty tomb is a shock. Got it. Christians are crazy. Got it. What does the empty tomb have to do with me? So the empty tomb is a shock. What does that have to do with me? Well, the empty tomb is also a comfort. Let's go back to Mary. She's devastated. All her hopes and dreams uh, have died with this man. His love, his grace, his acceptance of her, her hopes for what that would mean for her future, gone. Gone. Uh, And she really is just a picture of the rest of the disciples here. Her, Her grief is their grief. They are in mourning. They are devastated. He was the Messiah. And all of that was gone. And I probably, most of you have lived long enough to know severe disappointment. I don't really have to illustrate that for you. You know what that is like. In fact, you know how grief and loss and pain in your past work their way forward into your present. Right? Then when you've experienced a betrayal or an abuse in your past, it affects the way that you interact with people in the present. Even subconsciously, even unknowingly. 
right? Some of us are nursing and stoking that smoldering fire of bitterness because you, you won't let it go. You can't let it go. What has happened to you in the past, the people who've hurt you, now spills out of you onto the people you ought to be loving. Those things, those disappointments, those hurts, those fears, they can actually lead you to be a hermit. Not maybe in real life, but in practical life. You may not withdraw and live on a mountain, but you certainly don't let anybody in. You certainly don't let anybody get close. Or maybe you just run over people. Right? Either way, you kind of put people at arm's length because you are still nursing the disappointment of ages past, which is why a good counselor, right, what they aim to do is try to get into your past and dig up a little bit of that so they can help you work through it in the present. So you and me and Mary, what all of that has to do with the empty tomb is this. You and me and Mary, we are seemingly locked in this fallen world of grief and disappointment and pain. And our past wounds, even wounds we, the things we couldn't control now, tend to make us who we are. They lead us to do things that we wish we didn't do. It's what the Bible calls the fall. And the whole world is subject to it. We are broken. That's our condition. And Mary is experiencing that condition as she stands outside of the tomb weeping. And then she looks in and she sees two angels in white. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're an Old Testament person, if you know the Old Testament, you may remember that the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne, where heaven and earth met, there was an angel on each side of that throne. There was a cherubim. And so it seems oddly reminiscent that as... Uh, and, and what that talked about was, right, that, that was God, the guarding of God's presence. Well, here as Mary looks into the tomb, oddly enough, on that burial bench, she sees two angels, one at the head and one at the foot, almost as if to say, here is where heaven and earth meet. And they ask her this question, a gentle rebuking question. Why are you weeping, woman? Why are you so sad? There's nothing to weep over here. She doesn't catch it. Her grief has consumed her. And then maybe it was a noise. Uh, maybe she just felt the presence of another person, but she turns around, and there's this man standing there. It's Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And he asked her the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? And then he asked a more important question. Whom are you seeking? You see, she's seeking a what? She's seeking a dead body. Jesus says, whom are you seeking? Not what, but whom? Because the answer to our greatest longings, the salve to our greatest griefs, is not in what's. You will not find satisfaction in this life in a what. And most of you have lived long enough to know that. Maybe you've accumulated lots of stuff, or maybe your aim is to accumulate lots of experiences, but they keep, they keep disappointing you, don't they? 
after I have this degree, I can go on and do this, and then fulfillment. And yet fulfillment is elusive. It doesn't seem to answer the condition. It doesn't seem to stop the weeping. The answer to our greatest need is not a what. It's a whom. And so Jesus says, whom are you seeking? She still doesn't see him, still blinded by grief. She thinks he's the gardener. She says, look, you know, if you were, if you were in on it, if you've taken his body somewhere, will you just, just tell me? Just tell me so I can take him, I can say my final goodbyes, we can put him to rest, and we can be done with this whole chapter. And then he says her name. Mary, said that way, in that voice, and she realizes it's him. And all of the gloomy darkness is chased away by the blinding light of his face. She cries out, my teacher, my master. And he says something curious. He says, don't cling to me. It's not don't touch me, because he's later on going to tell Thomas to touch him. So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't touch me. What he's, what he's saying is it's a new day. Things are going to be different. She's probably at his feet, maybe clutching on to his feet, and he's saying, you can't hold on to me like that. I've got somewhere to go. I have yet to ascend to my Father. And not only do I have somewhere to go, but so do you. Don't cling to me. I've got to ascend, but you have to go tell my brothers. The empty tomb is a comfort. And the empty tomb restores the relationship. Notice what Jesus says. Go and tell my brothers. It's the first time Jesus has used that word. Before it was disciples, before it was friends, now he calls them brothers. And he says, I am ascending to my father and your father. So what the empty tomb has done is it has affected, it has bridged the gap, it has healed the relationship between God and man. Where before there was distance, now there's family. Where before there was no relationship, now there is relationship. Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father. There's a distinction. Jesus is the natural Son, and the rest of us are the adopted sons and daughters. There's a distinction. My Father and your Father. But because of what Jesus has done, because of the finished work on the cross... And because of the empty tomb, we can now call God Father. We can now say, not He is the God, He is my God. The empty tomb changes, restores the relationship. And so I hope you can see how then the empty tomb really restores all of our dashed hopes and dreams. What we lost in the garden, that relationship between God, our Creator, and us, has been restored. And because that has been restored, right, because it was broken, 
We were, we were victims, we were slaves of sin, and liable to death. But because of the empty tomb, we are now brought back into the family, and we have eternal life. That is how the tomb restores all of our dashed hopes and dreams. Are you still in the dark? Are you, like Mary on her way to the tomb, like the disciples cowering in fear in their homes, are you still in the dark? Still in your despair? Why are you weeping? There's no reason for sadness here. If you're still weeping, then I have to ask, whom are you seeking? Because if you have found the Lord Jesus, or better yet, if He has found you, then there is no cause for weeping anymore. Let's pray. It is finished. Oh, what pleasure those charming words afford. Heavenly blessings without measure flow to us from Christ the Lord. Lord, when you opened the tomb, you opened to us the treasure trove of salvation. You opened the great fountain in which we find cleansing. And you opened up the garden, a paradise in which we originally belonged. And you welcome all those who have put their trust in you. Draw us to the empty tomb. We're going to be shocked, astonished at such a bizarre claim. But then show us the truth. The truth that when you, Lord Jesus, rose from the dead, you came to comfort and to restore. And that if we have you, we have hope forever. Help us to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.